the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Corinthians. One camp is like, I don't believe in the gifts, I don't believe in any of the signs and wonders and miracles today. And so that's just dead orthodoxy. That's just absent the move and the work of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, you have people in the camp who say, it's all about the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, all the signs and wonders. But they don't necessarily sometimes pay attention to what the Bible says to be able to test and approve what those signs and wonders are, whether or not they're legitimate. Don't be deceived. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he talks about how when we get closer to the return of Christ, there will rise false prophets. In the Bible, there are many ways to describe love that the English language doesn't adequately define. Pastor Gary will talk about them today in his message, giving you a clearer picture of how Christ's love transforms this world. He'll also share how a lack of sacrificial love, or agape love, can invite false teachers and doctrines into the church. With the Holy Spirit's help, though, you can learn how to identify harmful teaching and find the truth instead. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection, subscribe to the podcast, or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Well, the topic of love from 1 Corinthians 13, love has always been a topic that has captured the hearts and minds of every human being, especially if you ever noticed how much the word love is mentioned in songs. Music is filled with descriptions about love. So I'm just going to recap a few for you. I'm not going to sing them all. I'm just going to recap a few for you. But from the decade of the 60s, Percy Sledge. When a man loves a woman. Remember that one? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate that. Elvis, also in the 60s. Wise men say, only fools rush in. Mm-hmm. But I. No, I won't do it. But I can't help falling in love with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. In the 70s, we had the emotions, best of my love. Remember that one? Captain and Tennille, also in the 70s, love will keep us together. How many of you remember that good old song? Love will keep us together. Now, were the Captain and Tennille, were they, were they married or brother and sister? I can't They were married. Okay. So, but the Carpenters were brother and sister. All right. I get those two confused. All right. So... Um, then we move on to the decade of the 80s, Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, Endless Love. Now, this just goes to show you how the younger generation don't appreciate 
older music. So I'm having this conversation with our middle school youth pastor the other day. And I don't know how the name of Diana Ross came up, but he looked at me with a completely blank look. And I said, please don't tell me. Now he's like 25, 26. I said, please don't tell me you don't know who Diana Ross is. He says, I'm sorry, I have no idea who Diana Ross is. You've got to be kidding me. Ain't no mountain high enough, you know, all of that? No, really? Seriously? He says, I have no clue. So I got really discouraged. Like, do all the people in their 20s not know who Diana Ross is? So I moved throughout our offices. And I gathered all the 20-year-olds together. And I stood Barrett next to me. And I said, all right, now, come on. I just need to know. Do the rest of you people know who Diana Ross is? And they're all like, yeah, of course we know who Diana Ross is. Okay, so it's only Barrett. All right, thankfully. Moving into the decade of the 90s, Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You, from The Bodyguard. Remember that movie? Good song. In the 2000s. Now, here's what got a little tricky for me, because I'm, I'm like researching, what are some good love songs through the decades? I get to the 2000s, I'm like, okay, I'm lost. I have no idea anymore what these songs are. And I had a hard time actually finding clean songs. I, I'm sorry to say, but that's just the way it went down. I did find Taylor Swift, Love Story whatever. And then, <laughs> and then in the decade of the 2010s, oh, it gets even more desperate. Justin Bieber. No, wait, wait, wait. I actually found a song that wasn't all that terrible. It was, it's called Love Yourself. Now, and at first I'm like, well, that's typical. Justin Bieber, love yourself, you know, but then I actually looked at the lyrics and it's actually about a girl his mama didn't like. And it's, somebody said, yes, you know that song? Who said, you know that song? Are you a Justin Bieber fan? Okay, but you happen to know the song. Yeah, so it's about a song about a girl his mama didn't like, and so he's just like, you might as well just go and love yourself, because I ain't loving you any longer. So I don't know if that was about Selena Gomez or whatever. But anyhow, the, re- the, the reason I'm bringing this all up is because we, we have a, a, a real preoccupation with the topic of love. It's reflected all through music of the decades. But when we get here to 1 Corinthians 13, this is a different kind of love. The Greeks, and remember the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. The Greeks have a much better way of expressing themselves with various words. In the English vocabulary, we have one word for love, and it's love. And we will use that word to describe a variety of things. We'll use it in the same sentence to describe completely different kinds of things. We'll say, for example, I love ice cream, I love my kids, I love Fridays, I love my wife. Now, I hope that you love your wife more than you love ice cream, but we will use that word to describe whatever emotion we're trying to communicate an expression of endearment about. But the Greeks, they have a better way of expressing the word love. For you note takers, they have four different words in their language. The first word is phileo, and it means brotherly love. So if they were talking about a friend that they loved, they would use the word phileo, to love in in a brotherly sense or in a sisterly sense. Uh, Again, many of you know this, but Philadelphia is from the Greek words uh, phileo and uh, delphia, meaning the city of brotherly love. If you know people from Philadelphia, it's not very fitting to call them that, but it's a city of brotherly shove, really. But, uh, but phileo is brotherly love. And then they have the second word in the Greek language, storge. 
Storge means family love, familial love. So if you talk about your siblings, if you talk about uh, your kids and, and, and your grandparents and your relatives, it's storge. If you would use that word in a sentence to describe your love for family. They have a third word, eros, which is erotic love. We get the word erotic from eros, romantic, erotic love, sexual love. So if they were uh, using the word love in a romantic sense, they would uh, use the word eros. And then they have this fourth word in the Greek language. And the noun is agape, the verb is agapeo. And it is this highest, most prized, pure form of love. It's the most supreme kind of love. And so just so we understand what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians 13, we're reading the word love, which is agape. That is the word that is used here in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's not this syrupy love, it is not romantic love, it is not family love, it is not brotherly love, it is the highest most prized, pure kind of love. That's the word that is used nine times throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, And as I mentioned last week when we uh, were ready to start chapter 13, G. Campbell Morgan once said that examining this chapter is like dissecting a flower to understand it. If you tear it apart too much, you lose the beauty. So I'm not going to try to tear it apart too much, but what I am going to touch on, uh, as we have already um, looked here at chapter 13, is I'm going to read it, and then what we're going to look at is three particular things that chapter 13 is evidence for. So let me read it here, starting in verse 1. Paul says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain... Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is evidence for three particular things. Now, again, this chapter follows, obviously, chapter 12, and chapter 12 was about the gifts of the Spirit that God gives believers 
various gifts uh, that are spiritual gifts that are uh, somewhat um, natural, some, somewhat supernatural, a combination of both, uh, in order to bring glory to him for the glorification of God and the edification of the church. So as we use the various gifts that God has given us, it helps to build up the body of Christ. That's what he referred to the church as in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, like a body, like a physical body. And just like your physical body has different parts, uh, all of it functions together uh, to, to make for a purposeful life. Uh, I mean, if, if you were all, you know, all arms, how would you walk? If you were all feet, how would you pick anything up? And so, you know, God has richly distributed various gifts within the church, much like a physical body has various appendages that are useful for the whole body. And then together, you see, we complement each other. We talked about this last week. Now, He's going to then qualify the spiritual gifts that we, we dissected all of the, the gifts in chapter 12 over a period of a few weeks. In chapter 13 now, he's going to talk about a few of these gifts, and he's going to make evidence for three particular things. And the first thing is, and I mentioned this at the end of last week, but I just want to build on this a little bit more, that 1 Corinthians 13 is evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that Jesus spoke of in Acts chapter 1 just before he ascended back into heaven uh, after he rose from the dead. And he told his own disciples, you wait in Jerusalem, you tarry for the gift that my father promised, for in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit, again, is the third part of a singular God. God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what Jesus promises, when you look at the Gospel of John through chapter 14, 15, and 16, it talks about the comforter or the counselor. The Greek word is parakletos, the one who comes alongside of you, and then the one who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit himself will guide you. The Holy Spirit will help you. The Holy Spirit will empower you. How, are, how do you and I live out effective Christian lives? Not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit who works in us and helps us and leads us, and counsels us, and convicts us. Okay, don't, don't despise conviction. That is a good thing. I've had some people over the years ask me, you know, Pastor Gary, pray for me that I won't feel convicted. I said, well, what are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm doing this and that. I said, well, then you ought to thank God for conviction, because it's actually a gift. It's stirring your heart so that you would get right with God. Because if you don't feel conviction, then you have what the Bible calls a seared conscience. You don't ever want to get to the place where you have a seared conscience. So feeling conviction about things is God's way of tapping you on the heart, saying, hey, I don't approve of this. I don't like this in your life. That's the Holy Spirit working in us, bearing witness with us, saying, hey, this is not right. You need to repent of this. Get your heart right with God. And so conviction is a good thing. Don't despise that. That's part of the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to convict us. Yes, to counsel us, encourage us, comfort us. But it is that part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, that then takes up residency in us, and then the overflowing work of the Holy Spirit is what is meant by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptizo in the Greek, it just means overwhelming, to be overwhelmed. Now, we, we think of baptism mostly in the church in terms of water baptism, which we practice for those who believe in Christ. We follow the example of Jesus. It's not required for salvation, but it is a demonstration of your salvation. When you go under the water and you come up out of the water, that's water baptism. But there is another baptism that the Bible describes, and it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the debate in the church is, depending on which 
church you might go to is what is the actual evidence that you have been baptized with this overflowing work of the Holy Spirit. And so therein lies the debate. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this. And so some of my card-carrying charismatic friends, and I, I am charismatic in the sense I believe in the gifts, but I'm talking about those who look to the gifts as something that they themselves are evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I would disagree with. And I have Pentecostal friends who say, unless you speak in tongues, you are not baptized with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I have some Pentecostal friends who would even go so far as to say, unless you speak in tongues, you're not even saved. I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't see that in the Bible. And so the gift of tongues and any other gift is not the evidence that you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. It can be a evidence. It can be a indication. But the reason why chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is given right in between the list of the gifts in chapter 12 and the function of a couple of the gifts in chapter 14 is because it is the glue that binds the whole discussion of gifts together. What Paul is saying here is the evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a particular gift. It is love. It is love because he actually disassembles some of the gifts in the first few verses of chapter 13. And he says, if if, if you have some of these gifts, but you don't have love, do not say that you are all that filled with the spirit of God because you're nothing without love. That's why he touches on the gift of tongues in verse one. He mentions the gift of prophecy in verse two and also the gift of faith in verse two and the gift of generosity in verse three. All of those gifts he mentioned back in chapter 12. But following each one, he says, if I speak in tongues, the tongues of men and of angels, there's a a language that God gives that is known on earth, and there's also an angelic language also within that mix. He says, but if I don't have love, I'm, I'm, I'm only making noise, is the hammer paraphrase, okay? I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He says, if I give, in verse 3, all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So you see how he makes love the preeminent thing here. He's saying, don't don't look at the gifts of prophecy and tongues and generosity and faith and think that if you operate in those gifts, that is the evidence. He's saying, no, 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 no. In fact, he asks rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 12 to get everybody to realize that everybody doesn't have all those particular gifts. At the end of chapter 12, on verse 29, he says, are all apostles, are all prophets? Actually, before that, in verse 28, um, and into 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Those are all rhetorical questions. He's basically saying, no, 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 no. Not everybody has all of these gifts. Collectively, we, we have these gifts, but not every single person will necessarily speak in tongues. Not every single person will necessarily have the gift of faith. Not every single person will necessarily prophesy. We have the gifts of the Spirit, but don't look at any one gift and elevate it above the others and say, well, unless you have this, you're not really filled with the Spirit, because that's that's the straw man that, that Paul disassembles here in chapter 13. He says, no, 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 no. The preeminent thing is love. 
over the years, I'm sure you can relate to this. I've run into a few born-again believers who are spirit-filled, speaking in tongues, prophesying, but they're mean as rattlesnakes. I was like, I'm sorry, unless you have the real demonstration of agape love, the highest, most prized, pure form of love, that is what is the real evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think it was Charles Finney who described his experience of being baptized by the Holy Spirit as liquid love. It was as if I was receiving just this pouring out of liquid love from heaven. Love is the evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We should believe in the gifts, but love is the evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The second evidence that's important here in chapter 13 to note is that it it also gives evidence for the continuation of spiritual gifts today. And the reason I mention this is because, again, there is on the other end of the spectrum from the card-carrying charismatics. On the other end, you have the fundamentals who don't have any fun in fundamentals, all right? And they, they would say, I believe in the fundamentals of the faith, by the way, but I'm just, you know, I'm saying some people who are staunchly, we're about the fundamentals. It's like, you know, you know sometimes, here, here's the balance, friends. When you have the Spirit of God and, and everything about the Holy Spirit without the fundamentals, you have emotionalism. When you have fundamental beliefs without the Holy Spirit, you have dead orthodoxy. That's what you have. On both ends of the, ex- on the extremes, you have one camp is like, I don't believe in the gifts, I don't believe in any of the signs and wonders and miracles today. And so that's just dead orthodoxy. That's just absent the move and the work of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, you have people in the camp who say, it's all about the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, all the signs and wonders, but they don't necessarily sometimes pay attention to what the Bible says to be able to test and approve what those signs and wonders are, whether or not they're legitimate. Don't be deceived. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he talks about how when we get closer to the return of Christ, there will rise false prophets who will perform counterfeit miracles. To deceive even the elect, if that were possible, Jesus said. So there will be even false prophets in the day who will perform miraculous things. Not every miraculous, and when I say miraculous, I'm describing something that is beyond the natural, that is somewhat, that is supernatural. Not every miraculous, supernatural manifestation is divine. Some of it is demonic, and you need to know the difference. There's the divine and there's the demonic. And if you... Want only the experience of some supernatural thing, absent the foundation of the fundamentals of the word, then you're liable to just get into a bunch of emotionalism without real discernment about what is of the Lord and what is not. So we have to be wise about these things. But Back to my original point, there are some in this camp over here who would say, no, there's nothing about the Spirit anymore, no gifts, no signs, no wonders. Okay, who, who, who then believe that the gifts of the Spirit ended at the end of the apostolic age. Well, the apostolic age refers to when the last of the apostles died. So when the last of the original 12, okay, minus Judas plus Paul. So when, when that whole group died, the gifts of the Spirit died with them, they would say in this, in this camp. And so therefore, these... Gifts of the Spirit are not available today. And they draw that conclusion from a verse here that I just want to clarify. It's verse 10 of chapter 13. 
And it says this, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, the imperfect is a reference to the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, there's only one who is perfect, and that's the Lord. So everything else about us and and the way we function and operate, there's enough flesh in all of us that there's imperfection in all of us. And so Paul writes here, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So when you look at the context, you realize that at some point, the gifts of the Spirit will cease. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we dig into the book of 1 Corinthians. The issues and situations that Paul was addressing in this letter to the Corinthian church are the same issues that churches face today. It's bold and courageous that Paul faced those things head on, and it would be negligent for churches today to not do the same. Despite the idolatry and sin that was running rampant in this culture, Paul encouraged the believers to be a light that shines in a dark world. You can be this today in the dark world that surrounds you. Be a light that glows brilliantly and stands out against the dark blanket of sin that surrounds you. If you're ever in the Leesburg, Virginia area, we'd love to meet you in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Stop in for a service this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45, or join us for our Bible study and fellowship on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pastor Gary would love to hear your story and how you came to know about the radio ministry of Cornerstone Connection. Find out more details, such as where we're located, at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have for today, but join us next time to learn more from the book of 1 Corinthians, right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.